Welcome to the Communicating Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colm Harney, a dentist with a special interest in all aspects of communication in healthcare. Each episode, I'll be having a conversation with inspirational practitioners to discover how they communicate effectively, creating exceptional relationships with their patients and fulfilling, rewarding careers. For clinicians who care, let's find out how the experts do it. This is an episode with a number of firsts. My first returning guest, Dr. Wendy Gill, with some unfinished business from our last conversation, and it's quite a technical, clinical episode. The 2017 classification of periodontal and peri-implant diseases and conditions has been around for a while now. Where it fits into this podcast is that it has the potential to be a very useful communication tool giving dentists greater clarity around what is disease and how severe it is. Firstly, to understand it in our own heads so we can convey disease status to patients and also so we can communicate with each other in the profession, whether it be between dentists and specialists or even within research and academic circles. I strongly urge you to have, at minimum, access to the staging and grading tables. I've attached links and hopefully by working through this you can gain as much insight as I did from this conversation with Wendy. Thank you again for joining me. You're my first return guest on the Communicating Health podcast and what my aim to do today is to pick up and run with something we left hanging a little bit from the previous conversation which is the 2017 classification of periodontal and peri-implant diseases and conditions. How this conversation, I suppose, has come to fruition is you mentioned that it was giving the dental profession much more clarity around the area of screening, diagnosing, and in turn communicating with patients and communicating among ourselves. And I'd really like to pick up that notion with you and and go into it in, in quite a bit more depth as to how we can use that. From my perspective, something I really struggle with is that ability to after we screen patients to delineate between the patients who have periodontal disease and need more involved treatment and those patients who stay on a, on a basics maintenance routine within the practice. If we dive into this a little bit, hopefully that this gives us a bit more clarity on that. The context as well, I suppose, is those extremes, the patients with frank periodontal disease who have been seeing dentists for years and it's not been diagnosed with them or at least not discussed with the patient in a way that that conveys the impact and severity and then on the other hand again you've been a GDP as well I see patients coming to me as new patients with some gingivitis three millimeter pockets bleeding a little bit of calculus no systemic risk factors who've been scared out of their skins by dentists telling them that they've got periodontal disease and if they don't start on a certain program they're going to risk losing all their teeth. So I suppose the truth lies somewhere in between there and hopefully we can nut that out. So firstly, Con, thank you for inviting me back again. I feel very honoured to be your first repeat offender as the case may be (laughs) and I think this is a a really good topic and and I hope that you get something out of this and and maybe we can clear up some of the issues and use the new classification in in a positive way certainly I think it's it's been a really good move and something that we've really needed in periodontics because 
all of our old definitions were, were quite vague and I think yeah. has led to a lot of this confusion that exists out there for, for everybody. And, yeah, if we can use it to and keep it simple, it certainly has potential to help us all. Yeah, and you've just brought up something there I meant to clarify with you at the start. I'm probably going to ask some very basic, seemingly simple questions. I hope this doesn't come across as an insult to your intelligence. (laughs) But you talked earlier about some of the issues we're going to raise today. You said certainly there are big issues for me. And you said both from your days as a GDP and also from what you see now as a periodontal specialist, these issues arise with many, if not most, dental practitioners. So hopefully, as you said, we can bring some clarity to some of this. Can we start off with where, in a linear sense, it all starts with the screening process? Take a hypothetical general dental practitioner's rooms, seeing a patient and screening for periodontal disease. So I think, as we discussed briefly, there's numerous screening tools that are used out there in, in amongst dentists. And I think it depends on when you graduated, which screening tool you use, yes. whether it's the CPITN or the BPE or the PSR. But all of these tools are designed to delineate the patient who has health and needs minimal intervention to the patient who might have the start of some disease to the patient who has more advanced disease. It's not diagnostic. It's meant to just pick up those patients who might have a bit of an issue. And certainly for myself, when I was in general practice, I used to use these screening tools to measure how their disease was, was progressing, which is really not appropriate and the difficulty I used to have was to take that patient from that recall appointment and draw a line in the sand to say you have periodontitis yeah now we need to do more and I still think that is a difficult issue I do too yeah you may see I have a cheat sheet next to me of the periodontal classification and I have one in each surgery and I have one in my office so I still refer to this regularly and I think this is a very useful tool in practice that dentists can say this is now a worldwide recognized classification of your problem yeah and actually just doing what we've been doing is is no longer enough without having to go into whatever the history may be we now have the science to to say that this is where you're at potentially for a patient. And one of the suggestions that, that I make, and, and you can clarify this, column whether this would work in practice or not, is you need to then get more information on that patient. Yeah. At a very minimum, you need an OPG and a periodontal chart. So it gives you an opportunity to get the patient back. Yeah. And in Australia, there are item codes you can charge for a consultation and for a periodontal charting and create another half an hour where your clinical work doesn't take very long, but you can sit and talk to the patient about what periodontitis is, where they fit on the staging and grading, and what you'd like to do about it. Yeah, something that you mentioned before we came on record is something that I think is a really important point, that we often have these blocked sections of time, like a 30-minute or 45-minute for a patient to, to do an exam scale and clean and within that time window it's those times are all stacked up in the day and we don't want to run late and if you find if we do one of these screenings we're we're all talking the same language on the zero one two three four if we find a three or four the implication of that finding really takes a great degree of time to 
discuss the implications of that with the patient, find out some more, do a full period charting. And what you've said, I think, is a really important point. I'm not trying to rush it within that appointment time, taking stock of what's going on and getting full mass imaging of some sort, whether it be OPG or full mass radiographs of some sort, and getting the patient back. And it's not waste time, even, even from the financial perspective, because there are codes to reflect that. But I think that's really important. And it's, you know, it's legitimate codes because that is what you're doing. And to be able to just explain to a patient with pictures or whatever it is that you're comfortable with or models, for them to understand that they now fall into this area of susceptibility of disease. And that's where the staging and grading is very useful because you can turn periodontitis away from it being the patient's not cleaning well to they have a susceptibility to this disease that we now have a much better understanding of. More importantly, though, is amazingly enough, this is the first time that we've actually had a classification of what is health. Yeah. So we've got a goal to work towards with patients to get them healthy. Okay. So they may have a susceptibility for life, but they can certainly achieve periodontal health and manage that underlying susceptibility. So I might be jumping ahead a little bit, Colm, I'm sorry. No, but I no. think one of the difficulties has always been at what point is your treatment been good enough for the patient? And I think if people have been struggling with that, it's fair enough because we've never had a definition of what, yeah. what we're aiming for and what's achievable. Maybe not for every single patient, but certainly for the majority of patients. Yeah. Um, so if you have an opportunity to sit and discuss that with patients... People now, we're 2020, you know, the, the vast majority of the population are much more educated about health than they were when we graduated from dental school. Yes. And they understand that inflammatory processes occur. And I think if it's explained to them in fairly simple terms, they want to get on top of it. Yeah. And yeah. they appreciate the advice. And I think there's more and more even coming out in the media about links with it. dementia was a, was a recent one. Yeah. The heart disease, cardiovascular disease has been around for a long time. The pregnancy. Two diabetes, yeah, yeah. pregnancy outcomes. Yes. Anything that's inflammatory, you'll find yeah. somewhere that there's a linked periodontitis. But obviously, you don't want to scare patients. And, yes. and the link is not causative necessarily. But it's a good opportunity to discuss that a lot of inflammation in the mouth is not healthy for their overall systemic health in general. And yeah. I think patients understand that. Yeah. And it, it moves away from, I'm just going to jab you with this sharp instrument to if you can start that conversation when you're even doing the screen to say, look, we do this to screen for whether or not you have periodontitis it starts that conversation they can they will say well how did i go what does my screen mean yeah hopefully yeah um and it may take a number of appointments before patients get to that stage you know some patients are resistant to want to know yes but that's our job is is to to guide them along the way yeah so if we start with the screening process and i've mentioned a few things to you that sort of come up time and time again in my head and i hear from time to time the objectivity of the screening process. So even from if I'm going to do a screening and then I find threes and fours and, and I refer them into you, 
how do I know that I'm going to do the same probing and, and get the same measurements on a rough basis as, as you are in terms of getting it pretty accurate over, over a whole mass? Can you speak to that in terms of even the use of our instruments, the pressure, the landmarks we relate to? Well, we know that there is variation in, in probing yeah. between clinicians, intra-clinician within ourselves and between clinicians, and the error should really only be around about one millimetre. So if, if someone is sending in a periodontal chart and my, my probing uh, is wildly different by two, three or four millimetres, then there's probably an issue to do with angulation of the probe. And we now run training courses for dentists and, and hygienists. And one of the things I've noticed is angulation of probing is very different amongst different clinicians. Okay. And I think that that's where the major error lies. So can you speak so to that then? It's difficult without a picture, but... Um, Are we talking you, about understanding the anatomy of the roots as you're going down into that sulcus? Or what, what are we talking Well, about? absolutely. You want to be parallel to the long axis of the tooth. So if the tooth is tipped, you want to be parallel yeah. to that tipped root. But what I actually see is uh, dentists and, and hygienists and therapists are actually coming more at a 45-degree angle to the yeah. tooth or they're kind of jabbing at the tooth rather than sliding down underneath the sulcus. So they may not be getting to the bottom of that pocket to that... So they're not getting to the bottom of the pocket, okay. but they're also causing more pain to okay. the patient. Right. And so the pressure of probing pressure is, should be to blanch your fingernail, which is not much. Yeah. So nobody can measure their own 25 newton centimetres yes. or whatever it might be. But that pressure to blanch your fingernail is not much. And, and the majority of people uh, that we see are, are probing hard, but it's the, it's the angle that is generally okay. the issue. Because quite often we can do a full mouth chart on people with seven and eight millimetre probing depths without a lot of discomfort. Right. Obviously, everybody's different. If they're very uncomfortable, we, you know, we would do it under local anaesthetic. And then in terms of reference points, um, the reference point is the top of the gingival margin. Yes. But when it comes to applying the classification, there's a very clear description that you should be able to see the CEJ. Okay. And so we're talking about loss of attachment from the CEJ between the teeth, interproximally between the teeth. So just relying on your probing depth is not enough to indicate clinical attachment loss because you may have a swollen gingiva. Yes. That may measure at four millimetres. Yeah, or you may have receded gingiva that measures at one millimeter that correct so yes that's so you, something but you're I still wanted. measuring your pocket yeah from the top of the gingival okay. margin yeah and then you need to add in how much recession may be there okay to get your true clinical attachment loss okay so uh, here's my first area that i run into confusion with i'll give you an example of somebody who's had recession which is quite common we see in patients in the 60s 70s we see either natural recession or, or pathological disease-caused recession. The patients who are the abrasive brushes often have really tight, small depth pockets, but yeah. significant recession. How does that translate in a basic screening if, say, they've got one millimetre pocket depth from the crest of the, the gingiva? What does that come up in as a screening if they've got five millimetres recession from the CEJ? If that five millimetres of recession is on the labial surface, 
yeah. on the palatal surface. Yeah. That doesn't fall into the classification for staging and grading periodontitis yeah. because that's from an interproximal area. Yeah. So that's where the classification can be used to delineate between those causes of recession. Okay. That's not due to disease. Yeah. Whereas horizontal bone loss can can happen from other reasons. Orthodontics yeah. can cause changes in the bone levels, etc. But in general, that inflammatory cause of loss of attachment you'll see interproximally. Okay. So that is where the screening tool is just one part of the whole application of your examination of the patient. Yeah. And that's why even with the new classification and staging and grading, you still need to use your brain, which yes. is really good because yeah. robots won't take our place for a while yes, yet. Yes, I like that. Yeah. Because the difficulty with a classification is it's got to be able to be used not only by us as clinicians but by academics yeah. who are doing very intricate research and have to have very specific definitions around what they're examining to them also being able to teach both undergraduates and postgraduates but then also epidemiologists out in the field where they have rudimentary tools also okay. need to be able to have some kind of classification to fall back on which is why the more you read into it, the more complicated it can become. But you don't need to make it complicated yeah. to utilise it in a, in a clinical setting, okay. in my opinion. Okay. And another area that has had a degree of controversy around it is probing around implants. Where does that sit? Because often implants will have a, a deeper pocket depth, for want of a better way of describing it, from the the gingival crest to the base of the pocket. So the, um, the attachment around the implant will be dependent on the depth of placement of the implant. Yes, correct. To where the soft tissue attaches because yeah. it's you know, a man-made phenomenon. And so you could call that perhaps the transmucosal tunnel because the tissue is not gingiver, it's mucosa, and it is much tighter. So it's beneficial if you have a, an initial measurement an initial okay. probing depth to oh, yeah. know what is okay. the start point perhaps yeah and then absolutely the recommendation is we should probe around, we should implant, probe. Yeah. around implants because we need to know if there's inflammation there and it is much harder to probe around implants yes. the tissue is tighter yeah the angulations can be sometimes difficult yeah working around the restorations can be difficult yeah and um, from what i've read in doing a little bit of research around this they said that the actual pocket depth number isn't necessarily indicative of a pathological process the bleeding on probing is more of a yeah, there's two yeah. aspects to that one is if you know what the original okay starting point Good was point. yeah then you're looking for is there something that's deeper yeah and that deeper probing may just be your probe sinking into inflamed soggy tissue it may not necessarily be bone loss but the bleeding is indicative of inflammation. Yeah. So you then have that inflammatory lesion around the tooth, around the implant, yeah. as you do around the tooth. And in a percentage of patients, that will trigger bone loss around the implant. So you want to try and manage that inflammation just like you would do gingivitis around a tooth. Yeah. And try and address all the risk factors that may have made that implant more prone to that inflammation okay. in the first place, which for most patients will be plaque um, yes. and access to plaque control. So sometimes we have to take restorations off and adjust them so that patients um, can access implants 
particularly with interdental brushes, which is another new thing that you may be aware. Yeah. That um, it's now recommended to clean around implants with interdental brushes rather than as opposed to dental floss. Yes. So that's um, a good point to bring up as well. It's changing subject quite significantly, but yeah. uh, it only takes a, a few cases of seeing some significant floss threads around a dental implant, which you realise the importance of, of patients being able to access implants to, to clean them. Yeah, and side tangent, would you recommend probing when you place, uh, soon after an implant's been placed to get that baseline measurement, probably makes some sense. So how, how soon? So the probing should be done after the restoration's been yeah. placed. Yeah, okay. And we usually want to wait about four weeks, four to six weeks, right. for the attachment to establish itself. Yes. Somewhere after that sort of timeline, and it can be the first time you see that patient after the restoration has okay. been done. Yeah. And it's a good opportunity to make sure that they can clean and you know that everything's comfortable so and it is safe to probe around implants i think there's yeah, been this that, great fear that it has yeah and there is certainly some data to show that um the attachment heals and re-establishes itself i think from memory it's five days so you can use a metal probe you don't have to use a plastic probe yeah because you're probing around the tissues you're not aiming to scratch at the any implant. sort of restoration that's there and it's more important to diagnose that there's a problem Okay. Yeah. So we've talked a a little bit about screening and implants and probes and angles and clarified the the clinical attachment loss versus probing depth. That more applies to the interproximal words of significance. Well, it's obviously significant if it's if you've got a deep pocket on a buckle or or lingual. Obviously. Um, that's inflamed, that's significant. But in, in terms of not getting bogged down with recession that's caused from a malaligned tooth or, or aggressive toothbrushing, yeah. whether that's a periodontitis patient or not because they have loss of attachment, I think just confuses the issue. Okay. And from that screening, say we've picked up on a, a three or a four, then we're moving it into this classification now from the new 2017 classification of periodontal disease, peri-implant disease and conditions. The first part is periodontal health or gingival disease. So before we get to sort of the staging and grading, there's a whole section in the classification on periodontal health. Yeah. And there's four sections to it. So you have pristine periodontal health where you have no bleeding on probing and no anatomical loss of periodontal structures or well-maintained clinical periodontal health where you may have a little bit of bleeding on probing. So that would be our gingivitis. Yeah. And you still have no anatomical loss of periodontal structures. Yeah. So you can't see the CEJ because you've got healthy tissue above the CEJ. You've had no attachment loss. Okay. Apart from those areas where there's been toothbrush, abrasion, yeah. okay. etc. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And there is um, descriptors of that that fall into attachment loss in the third section of the classification, yeah. falls into attachment loss that's not due to periodontitis. Yes. Okay, so it, everything is described throughout the four publications. But within health, you then step into those patients that have had periodontitis but have had treatment, and they can be often quite difficult to know at what point are we happy or are they, you know, healthy. So there's two descriptors for those patients. One is that 
they have periodontal disease stability and the other one is that they have periodontal disease remission or control. So they both fall within periodontal health. Okay. A patient with periodontitis has susceptibility, has been treated and has achieved health. And I think those words are important to use with patients to explain to them the susceptibility is still there, but we have gotten to a point where you are stable and there's very clear descriptors around what sort of probing depths they should have, what their bleeding on probing would be, and that they have no radiological bone loss. And something else that they seem to say in here, once a periodontitis patient, they say you remain a periodontitis patient for life. I've read that somewhere. And I suppose that goes back to that susceptibility. They can be stable or in remission, but that risk will always be there. Is that that correct to say? That's correct, because we know that that patient has that potential that within that inflammatory lesion, that lesion can trigger bone loss and loss of attachment in that patient. So that patient has a susceptibility. And at the moment, we can't test for whether that susceptibility has gone. Just like we can't test a young person to know if they're going to have that susceptibility. So that patient needs a good maintenance program. But that maintenance program can still be extended and altered as they display stability or remission over a long period of time. Yeah. As long as they're aware that the susceptibility may return. Okay. So that's where, again, you know, we don't want to instill terror into the patient who may have had some five millimeter probing depths that were cleaned out and and has achieved health and all other risk factors are under control but risk factors change as people age true and for them to be aware that many of the risk factors may not rear their head until they're older but the susceptibility is still there is is very important yeah so the label of the periodontitis patient doesn't automatically mean they need three monthly yeah, okay, treatment. that's a good point, yeah, yeah. But if they are a periodontitis patient who is unstable, so they're not healthy, they still fall within a periodontitis category, Yeah. then they will need more regular intervention Yeah. to try to prevent ongoing attachment loss. And they say that bleeding and probing is a primary parameter in this within this category of patient in terms of monitoring... So bleeding on probing, um, the really nice thing about technology is we now have computer programs that can calculate bleeding on probing because I think the number of people who sit at their perio chart and add up the dots and by 100 is probably fairly minimal. But bleeding on probing is our measure of inflammation. Okay. And we have very crude measurements really, the probing depth and bleeding on probing. But we have very good evidence to show that if a site does not bleed on probing, it's at very low risk for progression okay. because there's no inflammation in that area. That inflammatory lesion isn't there. So the goal is if we can reduce that bleeding on probing on patients, zero may not be realistic, but we want it to be very low in the periodontitis patient to yeah. know that their risk is low. Okay. And I think um, certainly from my point of view, there's been a, a greater shift towards the whole mouth bleeding on probing score and advising patients on how important it is to work to getting that down to reduce risk. And we definitely see that in, in our patient base, that those patients who are able to 
really get on top of their plaque control, yeah. really reduce their bleeding on probing scores, um, are doing exceptionally well and therefore need us less and less. Yeah, and that translates through to what we see in practice when they come back from your practice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, which is sense. great. That's nice to, to get that feedback. Yeah. Yeah. So moving from the health into the periodontitis, my understanding is that the, there's periodontitis and there's other conditions affecting the periodontium. Correct. Yeah. Within the periodontitis, there's necrotizing peri- periodontal disease periodontitis and periodontitis as a manifestation of systemic disease? So I think one of the big problems we have in periodontitis is it is probably a group of diseases that manifest with one manifestation of loss of attachment, deep pockets and bleeding on probing. And that's why there's been all this difficulty in delineating is it aggressive or chronic or prepubertal or this or that because they probably are different types of diseases but we don't have the tools to know exactly what is what. So all we can deal with is how they manifest with perhaps the difference of necrotizing periodontitis. Yeah and where you know that there's a significant systemic underlying disease that's affecting the immune system of that patient. But within what we would call the traditional periodontitis model, that whole is it aggressive or or chronic or mild or moderate, it was not very descriptive, I think, for dentists or patients and, and led to a lot of confusion. Whereas once you have diagnosed from your screen and then you've done your full periodontal chart, it's really not that difficult to apply the staging and grading. You pick the worst area of clinical attachment loss and you assess where their maximum probing depth is and that will really be a major guideline to your staging. The more complicated it gets with vacation involvements or how many teeth have been lost then they're in the higher, more advanced stage of periodontal disease and may be more likely to be easier to have managed by a periodontist. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that perhaps the line in the sand for the staging is stage one and two should eminently be manageable in general practice and perhaps even stage three for those dentists who have an interest in treating periodontitis. And and let's face it, many dentists don't. Yeah. (laughs) And I used to be one of those. But when you're starting to get to the more levels of complexity and certainly into stage four, I think that's a very reasonable point to be able to say to a patient, just like the root canal treatment has the fourth canal that's a little bit too tricky. Yes. I think dentists are very comfortable referring that, whereas they feel somehow less comfortable in saying that this is, is a little bit more than just a scale and clean and you need a bit more intervention to prevent ongoing tooth loss and keep you in an aesthetic, functional, comfortable, easy-to-maintain dentition, which is the goal. Yeah, and I think that goes back to something you said at the start. If we have this clarity now, around what are the different stages, we can communicate better with our patients and also with our specialists as well in terms of what, where's the line in the sand that we're comfortable with as a GDP. We, where's our line? And then we know how we're going to be referring. But we also have a tool now to explain that to a patient. And as, as well, I think, too, you have that tool where if you do do treatment, and you're not happy with the outcome, you've also got that descriptor of of what is stable or remission or unstable to help as well to say, you know, I think 
we can do better. And it's quite nice to pull out a sheet that's published internationally, whether it's yeah. the American Academy or the European Federation of Perinontology, wherever you get your particular chart from. Um, it shows the patient that this isn't something that Colm's just made up in yeah, his yeah. backyard. Yes. This no. is a worldwide yeah. recognised disease and disease process. Yeah, and to that, we, we're both sitting here with the American one. Uh, do you find, is that, I had a look at both, this seemed to be clearer and more succinct. I found it uh, just easier to have the American one to print out and laminate yeah. and have chair side. Yeah. There might be newer ones now because this was the one that was initially published and there's a lot more publications around the classification. But I found this eminently useful enough okay. for me. When I've had to look into this for, for this conversation and actually really work through it and try and understand it, this seemed to flow quite well for me in terms of trying to understand it. I was going to say, we, we've basically only been talking about the staging at this stage. Yes. Moving on to, into the grading of the periodontitis because the staging doesn't give any indication as to the speed of breakdown yeah, so of the patient. So. Again, from my understanding of this, the staging reflects the severity the complexity of management and the extent and distribution, which is all outlined on the top of that page. So you, so you, with that staging, you're classifying all of those parameters within the staging, and then the grading is aiming to indicate the rate of progression, the response to therapy, and the potential impact on health, which I'm reading off my notes here. The staging and grading, and we combine those two together to give an overall view of what's going on and, and hopefully outcome or prognosis. Am I correct in saying that? We'll stay away from prognosis because I think we talk more about risk factors and risk than we do about prognosis um, these days. But absolutely, you're correct in that, you know, just saying where the patient is and describing where they are right now in periodontitis is not quite enough because if they're a 30-year-old who's stage 3, okay. yeah. it's very different to a 60-year-old who's stage 3. Yeah. So how quickly their periodontal breakdown has occurred, how much biofilm or how much plaque and build-up there is, we know the patient that has very little build-up, very little plaque, very little biofilm, that can have a lot of attachment loss, yeah, yeah. has a higher risk. Yeah. So therefore, they may be the same stage as another patient, but they're a completely different grade. Okay, that didn't really fully grasp that. So thanks, that's really yeah clarified so that for me. Yeah, That okay. is where um, that rate of progression is really important. And then responsiveness to standard therapy means that there are some patients that will not necessarily respond well to just debridement. Yeah. Those patients who who we would have called a more aggressive type of patient in the past, and then how much inflammation they have and how much that may affect their systemic health is reflected by this grading. But the really nice thing about the grading is that clinicians should initially assume a grade B disease and seek specific evidence to shift to grade A or C. Yes. And you can see I'm reading directly. Yeah, and I, I'm reading that as well. So yes, I saw that. So it makes it much easier. So you can just assume most people are grade B. Unless you have something specific that really makes you think, no, they are a grade A or a grade C. And that's all described there under the grade modifiers and the primary criteria. So that's where more of those risk factors such as 
smoking, diabetes and their level of control can be brought into how you explain to a patient what their disease is. Two of the things around there is it's very helpful because you can say to patients that smoking does not give them periodontitis, but it certainly influences how their disease progresses. Yeah, it's a big modifier. It's a big modifier and it's something that over time they have control over. And, you know, I think you'll be surprised the number of patients that do reduce and eventually quit smoking in order to keep their teeth. If they can start to understand that it's not a blame game and it's not a judgment like we're always talking about in communication, it's purely we'll bring it down to we know that this is what it does to your disease. Yeah. We're here to help you along the way and you can influence your own outcomes yeah. you know, when yeah. you're ready. Mm-hmm. I fully agree with you on that. Looking into it in a little bit more depth, the staging talks about severity and complexity. The severity uses measurements of, we talked earlier about that interdental clinical attachment loss and RBL, which is radiographic bone loss. Yeah and tooth loss. So they seem to use three parameters to assess that severity. When you present on this, is there anything that you talk about in in any of those that we need to understand in more depth? We're primarily focusing on the clinical attachment loss and probing depths and bleeding on probing is all of our clinical measures. It becomes more important once people have lost teeth to have an understanding as to why they've lost teeth, particularly if you're starting to look at placing implants in those patients. Okay. So one of the things I talk about when I present on this is if you take a tooth out on a patient, I think it's important to let them know that that tooth was lost due to periodontitis so that down the track when they're maybe having lost more teeth, they can say, no, I lost that tooth due to gum disease or or due to gum problems. So we know that that patient is a susceptible patient. Okay. Because the teeth remaining may be healthy. Yeah. But that's only because all the worst teeth have gone. Yeah. Whereas they're not necessarily a non-susceptible patient compared to someone who lost their teeth due to caries or trauma um, or or whatever it might be. Okay. Um, So it, it is all around that whole susceptibility issue and how susceptible are they? Yeah. 40-year-old with no teeth is a different scenario to a 75-year-old with no teeth Sure. if both have lost their teeth due to periodontitis. Yeah. How much do you look at that radiographic bone loss? I know you showed me in your, in your room you've got the monitor where you've, you can pull up an OPG and put it in front of a patient. Is that a big factor in terms of your assessment? They, they give rough guidelines in terms of Bone loss. It's more of a factor in terms of treatment and treatment outcomes, and I'm looking less at the amount of bone loss and more at the amount of bone remaining. Okay, because yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, percentage bone loss, as it were, rather mm-hmm. than frank bone loss, because yeah. some people have incredibly long teeth, yes. and five, six millimetres of bone loss may, may not be a major issue, provided we can control the inflammation, and that's a biggest issue around molar teeth does does that bone loss then allow entry into the fecation involvements which is our great bugbear in in periodontitis clinical attachment loss is supposed to be used first 
as you're staging. Okay. But they have radiographic bone loss for those situations like out in the field in epidemiology where there's no ability to probe patients, yeah. where they can only just gather data um, or perhaps in, in any other setting where they're just collecting Data yeah, looking at x-rays retrospectively. Looking at patients. Yes, okay. So the, the primary information you need to develop your staging is around clinical okay. attachment right. loss. That, that's but the bone loss is also important when it comes to, to treatment. Yeah, and also as well, it mentions tooth loss due to periodontitis as well. It would obviously be an indicator as well for past performance. Indi- it's like your financial planning. Past <laughs> performance does indicate... <laughs> To a degree, future Sadly. outcomes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, correct. Yeah, and then it talks about complexity. It seems to be quite similar, probing depths and bone loss. In so in stage criteria. one and two, you know, you're not going to be having those extensively advanced probing depths. Yeah. So it's less than or equal to five millimetres is stage two. Yeah. And the bone loss being mostly horizontal, means there's none of those vertical angular defects which are very difficult to debride. Okay. So it brings in how complex is this disease going to be to manage. So if the bone loss is flat, you're dealing mainly with an inflamed pocket that's supra-bony, not infra-bony. Okay, yeah. So once the probing depth becomes underneath the bone crest, it's much harder to treat. Okay, yeah. That, that makes sense as well, and that, that gives me some understanding that I didn't have there, so thank so you. Therefore, if they've got that vertical bone loss, that's greater than or equal to three millimetres, and it's very difficult to detect less than, you know, less than two millimetres of vertical bone loss. That's why it starts at that number. It okay. starts at three. Yeah. Because vertical bone loss of one millimetre is not really clinically relevant. Um, and deeper probing depths or fecation involvements that are class two or three and some sort of ridge defects that may occur, we know that those areas are more difficult to manage. Yeah. So it makes that stage two disease more complex, which takes it into stage three. Yeah. And I might just add in that this is this is something that applies to a patient. There I think, some confusion around is some areas of the mouth stage 2 and some areas of the mouth stage yeah. 3. Okay. The classification applies to an entire patient. Okay. And you have to take it from the most severe area that, yeah. that, that you found. Yeah. And that is where that patient sits. Okay. Well, I suppose it does say in brackets here at the site of greatest loss. So yeah. you, you, you're staging based on that. And that, that is a really good point. If Yeah, we don't want to have this bias and be averaging things out and dropping the staging. And then the last piece of that staging puzzle is the extent and distribution, which talks about localized less than 30% of teeth or generalized or molar in size of pattern. So bringing in a descriptor helps to know the distribution and extent is really important, again, for treatment. Yeah. And it brings into the whole classification. We know the molar in size of pattern is what we used to call aggressive disease, which is what we would normally see in the younger patient yeah. that doesn't have a lot of biofilm that there is a specific bacterial profile that's usually involved and we often treat those patients a little bit differently and they should be referred much earlier because their their disease progression is more likely to be faster. Yeah. So they're more likely to be a grade C. So having a description in there 
then brings in the science that we know so that we still have an ability to differentiate the different presentations of periodontitis okay. that may have different underlying diseases that at this point in time they we only, can't delineate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They only okay. present as periodontitis. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's clarified a lot of that for me Good. already. So glad. thank you. Yeah. No, that, that's really helpful. Because it's not meant to be a complicated process. Yeah. Um, and certainly all, all the clinicians that, that are involved in this, when you, when you hear them speak or speak to them or any of the publications, it's, it's actually meant to make things easier. Yeah. But because periodontitis is quite a complicated disease and there are so many aspects to it, any classification has to cover everything. So yeah. by nature, it starts to... The more you read on it, the more involved it gets. Um, it, it can get a little bit confusing, which is not the intention. Yeah. And then the next step is going on to the grading from the staging. And we've got another table or page on that. Grading is to indicate rate of progression, responsiveness to therapy, potential impact on health. Can you speak a little bit more about these criteria that are, that are in the table? The primary criteria is you want to see that there's evidence of progression and how fast has that progression been. So the radiographic bone loss, you need sequential radiographs yeah and often we don't have that yeah if you do have it then it's nice and it's helpful and you can just take a, a visual measure to say whether there's been bone loss or no bone loss in the clinical setting yeah in the academic setting it will be a little bit different the percentage bone loss to age i don't think there will be a lot of clinicians again who are going to sit down and measure bone loss off their x-rays and take a percentage bone loss for age. And I don't think it's completely necessary when you can have a bit of an idea, you know, over different OPGs, have a little bit of a look at what that percentage looks like. Yeah. It will give you some idea of whether it's a slow rate, a moderate rate, or a fast rate. Oh, you would get it from your pocket depth probing uh, This over is bone time. loss. Yes. This is bone loss yes. over age. So yeah. how much bone loss do they have for the age that they're at? Yeah. So, again, the 30-year-old with 50% bone loss which we do okay. see, yeah. is definitely grade C because okay. their rate must be over one. Yeah. But whether they're a 0.27 or a 0.29 or a 0.23, I don't think it's that important. Yeah, okay. Because we can assume a grade B and then you need some significant evidence to say you're going to shift them to a grade A or C. Right. And I think in the clinical setting in general practice, you will have a sense whether they're a very slow progression of disease or whether they're very fast. Yeah. Because you may do your CPRTN, PSE, and it's all twos and maybe one, three, and then the next time there's a whole bunch of fours, yeah. you yeah. know things have gone gone downhill very quickly. Yeah. And it's probably not your fault. I think there's an element of that in general practice where you're seeing the patient every six months and things go backwards. And the first thing we often do as clinicians who care is we go, what did I do wrong? What did I miss? Yeah. What's my fault here? And it's a pretty good chance it was nothing and that the patient, yes. something's happened with the patient. Yeah. I have that written down here as a scenario that gives me probably the biggest amount of guilt as a as a gdp the patient who you monitor bpe has ones and twos the odd three at some six months and then they come in six months later and there's a couple of threes and fours in those sextants and you kind of go have i missed it and yes 
Well, I'll tell you, it's probably no different for the periodontist. Okay. Although we do chart, we chart patients every visit. And then a patient, even today, we had one that a probing depth went from a four to a nine. And the first thing we all do as clinicians is go, well, did I miss something last time? Was there something wrong? When actually maybe there was, but more than likely there's something else that's happened. Yeah. Something's happened with the patient or something's happened with the tooth. Regardless, we may still manage it the same way. But we want to find out what has gone on. And certainly in periodontitis, if we have that patient that all of a sudden has gone backwards at more than one site, the first thing we do is we'll get everything out of the mouth, we'll sit them up and we'll say, are you okay? What's been going on? Okay. And uh, a lot of times it will be chronic stress which affects their immune system, which has also meant they've been busier, they're looking after elderly parents and young children or someone in the family's been unwell, therefore they're not cleaning their teeth as well. Or it could be as simple as they've gone on holiday and they didn't take their electric toothbrush or their interdental brushes, or it may be something else that's going on. So that is where I think, you know, I used to have that all the time in general (laughs) practice, and and I still have it in, in specialist practice. You know, we have to sort of step back and go, yeah, disease happens. happens. Yes. Disease happens. And at some point, the patient with periodontitis has to be diagnosed with periodontitis. And at some point, there has to be that you have developed disease. While you're under my watch, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And again, with this classification, I suppose it gives us greater clarity to see that moment in time and say, well, you've gone from a a grade one and we've been watching you for a long time and you've now tipped into a three suddenly and it gives us that greater clarity to be able to communicate maybe a sense of urgency to to the patient that we need to step up and and do something different. And that's why you've been concerned about them, that's why you've been hassling them to clean and floss and come back and that's why you monitor them on a regular basis and thank goodness that you do, that you've picked this up when you've picked it up. Yeah, okay. And that's certainly what I think most periodontists reiterate when when the patient comes in on the other side is at least you've been diagnosed now. Rather than being thrown under the bus. I think that's quite, it's it's quite rare because I'm sure every periodontist who's been in practice for more than two weeks has seen cases where where progression has happened really quickly. Yeah, yeah. And even among our own patients. So um, the throwing under the bus actually happens more from the patient point of view, the angry patients that come in are the ones that have actually known that they've had a problem and have been asking for more treatment or asking for, is there not anything else I can okay. do? And have been told, no, there's nothing else you can do. They're the patients that are really angry. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think that comes back to, uh, I keep changing subjects on you, Colin. No, that's okay. It's a really good, interesting train of thought to good answer, yeah. It comes back to that sort of some dentists dislike treating periodontal disease. But I think too some dentists don't really believe that we can do a lot for periodontal disease and they have seen failure year after year after year, failure of periodontal treatment year after year after year. And so they, they just don't think it's really worthwhile to, to go to that trouble okay. and expense and additional treatment because they haven't seen enough success. Yeah. And that's where um, changing that mindset for 
for dentists, if that's been their experience, is really difficult. Yeah, and it's something probably of all the specialities that I've seen the greatest change in probably in my 25-year career, greater than endodontics, orthodontics, is the increasing success rate in perio, I think it has changed. I think um, certainly in our, even in our practice, I think the outcomes we see now are very different from five to ten years ago and it's great because it's much more rewarding to see success yeah none of us like seeing failure which is why the vocation involvement remains the bugbear of, of periodontists but trying to create a bit more positivity around periodontal treatment i think is is really important not just for the patients but also for a lot of the dentists that yeah just that- they discourage patients from seeking extra treatment because they, they have the patient's best interests at heart. Sure. But they feel that the patients wouldn't benefit from additional treatment, which is yeah. which is a shame. We know that our outcomes are good. Yep. And you and I talked a bit about that in our previous conversation, and more than a bit, if anyone wants to explore that avenue further, i refer you back to the other conversation we had. Is there anything more needs to be said about grading? Certainly grade modifiers, they talk about risk factors. The, the big two, I suppose, are smoking and, and diabetes they yeah. mentioned specifically. So I think this is, re- this is really interesting in the risk factors that it's only smoking yeah. and diabetes that yes. make it into the grade modifiers. That's because they're the only ones that have enough evidence behind them yeah. to say that, yes, these are risk factors that change the disease progression or the disease presentation or your risk. Okay. Um, So the ones that are perhaps missing that people may go, well, where is family history? Yes, genetics, yeah. Where is obesity perhaps? Where are some of the other inflammatory disorders? And they are not there purely because the science just doesn't back it up to say that they are risk factors. And the genetic aspect I think is really interesting because – we would all have practices full of one family where every member of the family has perhaps a grade C type of periodontitis. But the science shows that heritability is 50%. Okay. So, Colin, if you have four children and you had periodontitis, two of your children are likely to be at risk of periodontitis. But if you and your wife do not have periodontitis, two of your children are still at risk of developing periodontitis. Right. Because that is um, how, how prevalent it is yeah, in, okay. in the general in population. the general population. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. And that's why it's not there. And perhaps that will change. If, you, if you're interested enough to actually read through all the papers, um, there's certainly scope within both the staging and grading that some of these factors may change as time goes on and as the science shows us more knowledge yeah. You know, perhaps obesity may come in as a risk factor and we may have an actual BMI grading within the A, B and C. Okay. We don't know yeah. yet. Yeah. But the knowledge that is and, the, and the, the rate of what we know about periodontitis is just increasing phenomenally every year. So there is scope for more information to come into both the staging and grading over time, which yeah. is good. Yeah. And pulling all that data together what should a statement or a diagnosis look like it seems to be a little bit longer or more extensive but i suppose that reflects it's more detailed so something like i've written out the extent periodontitis stage grade stability and risk is what what was outlined in a paper that i saw so, so i think again yes i mean certainly 
when I'm writing reports back to, to dentists, at the moment I'm just using a stage and a grade. Okay. And an extent and distribution. Yeah. Okay. So I think dentists don't want anything that's too complicated. Yeah. As long as I have my own recording of what the complexities are yes. and what the difficulties are, I certainly don't think in a referral anybody's going to be particularly concerned whether you have every single box. Yeah, okay, fair enough, yes. I think that's much less important. But if you wanted, and certainly at an academic level, and the undergraduates and postgraduates would definitely be be writing a stage, whether there's a history of tooth loss to periodontitis, describing the complexities, what factors come into complexities, whether there's vacation involvements or vertical bone loss, and then an extent and distribution. Okay. Then grading and adding in grade modifiers. So we would include grade modifiers in my report because it's either smoking yeah, or yeah. uncontrolled diabetes. Yeah. yeah, you've certainly given me, a, and I've spent a number of hours actually looking at this before we've come to this conversation to try and work it all out in my head. And there was a few things that weren't quite computing, so it actually is a lot clearer now from what, what we've discussed. I would highly recommend anyone who's listening to have reference to periodontitis grading and the periodontitis staging, and I'll put links on the platform, hosting platform, to those as you're listening, because certainly that you would need to be referring to that as you're listening, but it certainly has given me a lot more clarity on those, so thank you. So the next level now, the European Federation of Periodontology has moved on to the next level, which is to produce treatment recommendations according to staging and grading and I think the next level after that will come to risk factors and what we would traditionally refer to as prognosis. So with time these these factors will all become a little bit, bit clearer for people and there will be more clarity around recommendations of treatment and at a broader global level hopefully that can be used then to try to influence health funds to Okay, yeah. Perhaps help patients a little bit more than they do at the moment um, and governments to invest in preventive programs. Now yeah. we know how much it costs the community to have undiagnosed and untreated yeah. periodontitis. Okay. So th- there's a, a broader um, application to, to all of this now that we've got yeah. more clarity okay. around definition. That's really interesting. Yeah, so that that's for the future. That's, Hopefully. Yes. We have to have hope. Yeah, absolutely. Within the context of this, the, the periodontitis is, is the really relevant one. All the other conditions, the systemic diseases, we'll put that to one side and move into another area that comes up with, a, with greater and greater degrees of relevance. As it's described here within the classification, uh, peri-implant diseases and conditions. So it's always, it's uh, been an area of, I think the word used was controversy for quite some time, but I think if we just break it down to saying that we know that bone loss occurs around implants. Yeah. And implants are not teeth. They're, they're a different beast and they don't have a periodontal ligament around them and they don't have gingiva around them. They've got mucosa around them. Yeah. So what causes this bone loss around implants can be many different factors. And I think it's the simplest way is you've still got a hard surface that's protruding through into a bacterial-laden swamp. Yeah, okay. And there will be patients that 
within that soft tissue, they will develop inflammation. Yeah. That inflammation will present as peri-implant mucositis is yeah. now has a definition around it. Yeah. As does peri-implant health. So perhaps we should take a step back. So, yeah, I was going to say we've got the outline four grades again. So health, peri-implant mucositis, peri-implantitis, and soft and hard tissue deficiency. So again, what you said about the periodontitis, they give a definition for healthy implant. Correct, which is, yeah. which is really helpful. And yes, it does mean that you need to probe around the implants, which means that yeah. yes, you need access to probe around the implants. And that's where starting from before the implants even placed, having a, a design and a future plan for something that is cleansable, that has good soft tissue around it, that is keratinized and attached, we know will help prevent some of these problems from surfacing down the track. I think that's a really, really key point. I restore implants, and certainly my understanding of all of this is really influencing my communication with my technician now around the design of the prosthesis that I'm putting on implants. Yes. Excellent. And I think having those conversations with technicians is really important yeah. rather than having the mushroom on top of the stalk of the restoration to make it look like a tooth. Yes. Oh, that it can ri- still look the, like a the tooth. The ridge lap and all, all of those yeah. things that you... Yeah. It can still look like a tooth as far as the patient requires it to, but, yeah, that soft tissue level they need to be able to access to clean yeah. it. So the healthy peri-implant tissue has no signs of inflammation, so it won't bleed, it won't be red, it won't be swollen, there's no suppuration, um, and the probing depth doesn't increase from that original probing depth. Yeah, now, you may not have that original project. No, problem. Certainly. So, but I, I will do in future. But there is also the aspect where you can look at the radiograph and you can yeah. see if the implant is placed quite deeply yeah. and the soft tissue level remains you know, at the original anatomical level, you yeah. can expect that original probing depth to be deeper. Yes. So maybe five millimetres might be healthy yeah. if it's not bleeding, Yeah. depending on the depth of placement. Um, so having a, a description of health is good because you know that implant doesn't need any intervention apart yeah. from plaque removal that may be there, making sure that the patient can clean it. A question just that you mentioned radiographs. How often do you think we should take like a periapical of an implant? I've been caught out once or twice with the really tight, tight cuff around the implant that's very hard to probe yeah. and bone loss has happened underneath, which I found very difficult to, to, to detect because either the, the design of the prosthesis that I couldn't get a probe in yeah. or that, that tight cuff. As a rough guideline, should we be imaging implants more often than maybe we do? Well, um, to go back a, a step, I think it's not essential to get a periapical yeah. of the implant so because you want to try and get the angulation of your radiograph to be parallel yeah. to the neck and the threads of the implant. Yes. And as long as you can see where the bone level is at, you don't necessarily need the apex. Okay, yeah. Um, just, just to clarify that. Okay. You need a baseline radiograph so you have something to yeah. compare back to. Yeah. And there used to be a time where it was recommended to take radiographs every year. That's certainly not the case. I think you would take a radiograph if you see signs of clinical inflammation. And I think if you have difficulty probing at the implant, there's no harm in taking a radiograph a few years after placement. Okay. 
see how it looks at that stage. If there's no change, you would assess it according to the clinical presentation. But if you have any concerns, then you would take a radiograph. Yeah. Okay. And um, of, of those aspects, I think the biggest concern is when you don't really have good access to probe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the tight clinical cuff, you'll, you can often, if you look at the tissues, although you do need to probe as well, the tissue will give you some, often some indication if there's something going on underneath. But yeah. if in doubt, take a radiograph. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it falls within the ALAR principles. Yes. But you do not need to take a radiograph every year. Yeah. If it's all other signs are clinically healthy, that, that's no longer the okay. case. And you don't assess implants just by radiographs alone. Yeah. Yeah. And going on to the next step, which you mentioned earlier on, it's mucosa that's down in that pocket, so it's called mucositis if it's inflamed correct okay because it's it's not the same tissue as gingiva yeah you don't have fibers attaching perpendicularly into the implant or the or the abutment like you do at teeth yeah fibers run circumferentially around the implant so the attachment is slightly different and within the tissue there's less blood vessels it's more like a scar tissue than it is like a gingiva. Okay. You also don't have gingival curricular fluid mm-hmm. because yeah. you have no periodontal ligament. Yeah. So the com- composition of the tissue is different, and that's why it's denser. You can feel it when you probe. It's yes. thicker. Often yeah. it's more uncomfortable to probe around yes. an implant. Yeah, that's true. When it's tight and when it's healthy. So um, hence the term, yeah, it's peri-implant mucosa. And if it's inflamed, it's peri-implant mucositis. Yeah. So then if we move on to when we have bone loss. So you can have bone loss around an implant for many different reasons. Say there's been a bone graft placed many, many years ago that was only autogenous bone. Sometimes they can still have ongoing resorption. Okay. Patients actually do um, continue to have remodeling, particularly the anterior maxilla remodels. Uh, posteriorly and superiorly so an implant can then start to have bone loss at the coronal section that's purely from anatomical remodeling okay you can have bone loss they have been there to start with the implant may not have been completely covered in bone to start with perhaps and certainly um, this there's lots of different issues that, that can happen around that but if that tissue then has inflammation in it and the definition of a peri-implant titus is where you have bleeding and or suppuration on your gentle probing, increased probing depth compared to previous examinations, or bone loss. Yeah. So you have an inflammatory type lesion. Now that inflammatory lesion may be secondary to the initial bone loss. Okay. Or it may be the cause. Yeah. And I think the confusion comes around we don't always know which came first. What we do know is that access for plaque control is a major factor. Yes. We know that the fit of the restoration and whether or not the screw is still tight. Okay. The screw can have something called loss of the preload, which you have to talk to a prosthodontist about, not me, or might be loose, um, allowing bacteria into that implant abutment connecting area. That may be the cause, but the outcome may still be inflammation and bone loss and peri-implantitis. 
Plus, we know that the periodontal status of the teeth is very important. The more deep probing depths you have around teeth, the higher your risk of developing bone loss around your implants with an inflammatory lesion. So treating that lesion at the implant, you also have to treat the teeth. And I think another factor that's leading to our improved outcomes is when we actually do treat a periimplantitis lesion, we still clean all of the teeth and reduce all of the biofilm in the entire mouth. Yeah. Because the implant doesn't live in its, in isolation to everything sure. else that's going on around it. So what percentage of patients have perhaps a true periimplantitis? We don't really know because there's so many factors that may involve maybe influencing why they have the bone loss and periimplantitis yeah. in the first place. But I suspect that that, that true susceptibility to periimplantitis is is very much related to that true susceptibility to periodontitis and that's a smaller percentage of the overall periimplantitis cases so the complexity around that is when you're trying to treat the condition you have to address all of the factors that may have contributed to the presentation of the condition in the first place okay does that make it sound more complicated than it needed to it doesn't it doesn't (laughs) so going back to what factors like you talked about the, no, the access design, to yeah, access the design of the restoration. Yeah, yeah. Does the restoration fit properly? Yeah. Is the screw okay? Is the mucosa around the implant adequate? Or do we have mobile mucosa that's moving, that's allowing, A, making it difficult for plaque control and allowing plaque to accumulate more easily okay. around yeah. that area? Is that something that does need to be addressed? The implant's too close together? or the restorations are too close together and patients can't access with an interdental brush, or are they smokers? Okay, yeah. Are they uncontrolled diabetics? Do they have immune system issues that that may be increasing their risk to any form of inflammatory lesion that can lead to bone loss in that particular patient? Yeah. But it's not black and white. I have patients um, who've presented with incredible periodontal destruction with absolutely pristine peri-implant health. Okay. And vice versa. So, so that's, there's more there's work, more to it. More understanding yeah. to be... And the lesion around the, the implant is different to the lesion around the tooth. The inflammatory lesion, it is more aggressive. It's down to the bone level because there is no cuff of connective tissue yeah. to yeah. protect the bone around the implant. Um, and the bacteria and the, and the mix, it's not just bacteria that's involved around the implant. There's you know, more fungi. There's, oh, right. um, okay. there's a different mixture in the soup, as it were. Okay. So it's not exactly the same condition, but there's certainly a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. For GDPs... Staying on the peri-implantitis, but moving away a little bit from the classification, cleaning implants and regular maintenance, this is an area of, again, of controversy. Metal scalers, steel, titanium versus the plastic scalers. The plastic scalers, I think, don't really do a whole lot. Is that... I think it depends on what you're cleaning. So Mm -hmm. if you've got a healthy implant, no bone loss healthy peri-implant tissues and you've got plaque and calculus, you want to make sure that you're not scratching your titanium or gold abutment. Yes. But if you've got porcelain, just like you can clean porcelain around a tooth, you can clean porcelain around an implant with your ultrasonics and, and with your conventional scalars. If you've got a situation of bone loss and you're cleaning an implant surface, Mm -hmm. that surface is already rough. Yeah. And I use my conventional 
ultrasonics. Okay. In fact, I used some quite aggressive ultrasonics because what is more important is that you get the biofilm off the implant surface sure. than maybe some additional roughening of a surface that to a bacteria is already rough. Okay. So it depends on what you're cleaning with what you would use. Now, the difficulty is we know, and I'm going off onto another different tangent here, we know that subgingival air polishing with erythritol powder is very effective at removing biofilm. Okay. Which is airflow technology. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's what we utilize with with fabulous success in maintaining implants. Okay. But not all practices have access to that technology. Yeah. And personally I found the plastic scalers impossible. The carbon fiber scalers, even though we used to file them down to make them fine, they were ineffective. Um, I have titanium scalers. I have almost every tip that's been produced to try to clean around implants. Um, it's a recognised difficult issue. Yeah, okay. Glad it's not just me then. It's not just you. Okay. And uh, I, I used to have to give lectures on how to maintain implants and, and I'd be showing pictures of these carbon fibre scalers that I'd, I'd have to say to people, uh, these are very, very difficult to use. Okay. So in my hands... We treat perimplantitis under local anaesthetic and, and debride the implant surface significantly. Yeah. But in maintenance, it's subgingival air polishing with yeah. erythritol powder and so airflow. So getting the calculus off and then using and then that to, to get the biofilm. Yeah. 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 And we're hearing more and more about great results with that. More and more people are talking about it. It's a much more effective way to manage dental implants with greater ease for clinicians as well as for patients. Um, but I, I don't work for that company, so... No, but I, I have heard you talk about it before and yeah, you're obviously very enthusiastic about it because it's worked. Well, again, it's been helpful for us to then be able to deliver better results yeah. um, to patients and referrers in periodontitis as well as in periodontitis. Yeah. I think uh, being able to access biofilm with something that's not just a point like the tip of your scalar or the tip of, of your ultrasonic, but yeah. something that is a that is a diameter and a region rather than a point is very sensible. Yeah. I don't know. Do we have anything more to delve into in terms of... Did you want to talk about the, occlusion? We can possibly. T- <laughs> so we, t- we talked, certainly I've got a much greater understanding of the, the classification and Ultimately, it's a it's a communication tool for us to communicate to patients, I think, but also within the dental community as a GDP to talk to specialists, and I'm sure within your practice to speak to people who work, you know, the therapists and other other specialists that you engage with as well. I'm sure it's it's going to be a very useful communication tool. I think we're all still learning. I don't think you can read it once and and you and you have it. And even talking to other periodontists, we're we're all still absorbing and and trying to find out how to use it in a way that's meaningful between ourselves and and to dentists and to patients um so i don't think you're alone Mm -hmm. it takes a little bit of time like i said i've got this printout in every surgery and in my office because i I do still refer back to it we'll round off with a a last area of that, that does have a degree of controversy or a degree of 
conflicting information, the, the role of occlusion in periodontal disease. As I was saying to you earlier, as, as a GDP, we see it. It seems to make sense that occlusion should have some impact. And we do see that those patients with the occlusal issues often it goes hand in hand, either with perio or with difficulty in resolving perio when we try to treat have you anything to say about that? I think it's an area of huge controversy and it's a common question in final exams for postgraduate students is the role of occlusion. And it's ta- taken me a long time to come to grips with where I sit with how to manage occlusal issues for teeth and for implants. And I'll start with implants because it's a little bit easier, I think, to explain that the bone-to-implant contact is a very strong, very reliable one, but yeah. that, that can be overcome by overload, okay. which would be a very significant overload. But I have seen patients lose implants with no inflammation who are very heavy bruxes. And one of the things with managing implants, which I don't do particularly well, is to, to check the occlusion to make sure that you've got differential wear between your teeth and perhaps a porcelain surface on your implant crown and other porcelain surfaces that may not wear as quickly as the teeth. So the implant can become slightly higher in the occlusion over time, which would need to be adjusted down so that implant is not then in an overload situation. Yeah, and that's something I'm certainly looking at more and more now when I'm reviewing my implants is that Which can be also very difficult to manage because there's a limit to how much you can adjust. True. But also then managing bruxing is such a huge issue. So, so I think that's a little bit easier. When it comes to periodontitis, we know that overload doesn't cause periodontitis. We know that you need bacteria and you need a susceptible patient. But if you take a step into when we do regenerative therapy for patients, if we're trying to rebuild bone using a bone graft, for example, yeah. the recommendation is to stabilise that tooth and splint it perhaps to the tooth next door and make sure it's not got frematous. So when the patient bites, the tooth doesn't move, and when they grind, there's no frematous and eccentric, so that tooth is not moving because you want that wound area to be still. Yeah. So it would make sense in a periodontitis lesion that if we can somehow manage to keep that tooth a bit more still, we may be able to influence better healing. Yeah, to me it's like a simple analogy of getting a cut on your skin and poking at the scab every day and expecting that wound to heal. It yeah. The data is not strong, yeah. and I think that's where the controversy exists because I think it's a very difficult thing for science to delineate okay. and to examine. You can't really do a very good controlled clinical trial on something like this. But my, I guess, approach completely changed about five years ago. I never used to adjust occlusion on teeth. I barely looked at it. Bruxes, we would recommend go talk to the dentist because of wear and wanting to avoid cracks. Whereas now we're, we're very proactive in looking at how much tooth movement happens with frematous, whether yeah. teeth people might be bruxing or not. And five years down the track, we are definitely seeing better results in a, in a significant number of patients. And I've seen you've sent me patients back to have splints <laughs> made as well. So that's translating through. Yeah. It's a huge area because I'm a periodontist that deals with inflammation, bruxing and sleep issues and all of that is is not really my field. 
but we definitely do see the outcomes and we're splinting teeth more frequently just to try to get better resolution of periodontitis lesions and we're definitely seeing that that can occur and the patients we struggle with are the ones where we can't manage those occlusal issues. Yeah, it would make sense just in general terms if you want healing to optimise the conditions for that healing as much as you possibly can and taking into account every factor that comes into play. Occlusion must be a factor in some cases, I'm sure. Well, I think it's an influencing influencing factor. Yeah. Whether it makes disease progress more quickly has been a big focus sure. in the literature. And I think that I'm probably less focused on that and yeah. more focused on what outcomes we get from treatment. Yeah. Well, thank you for addressing that, uh, that one that comes up from time and time again as well. Uh, This has been a really illuminating conversation this afternoon and as I said from looking into this myself and and having a degree of understanding you've really brought it up to to really really clarified a lot so hopefully anybody who's listening with reference to these sheets and having I would recommend just having a bit of a look into it and then by listening to this conversation I think you've brought a huge amount of clarity to the detail of this so um, I'm thank you Colm I hope it does and I hope you know for the listeners I guess from my point of view I'm, I'm a clinician I'm not an academic I have huge the people that were involved in putting this classification together are the world leaders in everything to do with periodontitis and periimplantitis. And we're fortunate that a number of them came from Australia, including Lisa Heights-Mayfield from Western Australia. So we're very lucky that we have access to, to people like this. That can help us who, you know, work at the coalface all, all day. And this is, is my interpretation of how I can, you know, incorporate this in my practice. Yeah, and so. put, it, put it into real day-to-day dentistry, how, how it applies. I think it, it's, I suppose, how it fits into this podcast is I see it as a, a very useful communication tool. If we can get an understanding of this, use it with patients, I can then communicate where, where that patient stands and then use that to watch it over time as well watch yeah, and hopefully reduce reduce fear but improve improve knowledge for patients as yeah. well and empower them to take charge of their own condition yeah so thank you Colin. okay no thank you very much wendy thanks again to wendy for coming back on the podcast and sharing her expertise in this subject in a clear and practical manner you've made an intimidating subject matter much more accessible for us all As always, please recommend the show to anyone you think would benefit. Use the share button, it's really easy. Also, ratings and reviews boost the profile of the show and makes it easier to find for listeners all over the world. I'm looking forward to you joining me for the next episode of the Communicating Health Podcast.